I read the Diane Ravage blog every morning. That's how I start my day. And I read about these horrendous, ridiculous, scary things that are happening in other states. Ravage always gives a nod to how well we are doing in New Mexico. When I see New Mexico, it's always good. Hello, welcome to Radio ATF, Sounds of Solidarity. This is Dwayne Norris, Vice President of Membership and Involvement here at Albuquerque Teachers Federation, and we're glad you joined us again. I'll be your host today, and we're joined again by ATF President Ellen Bernstein. The title of this episode is It's Great to Be New Mexican, and we're going to be talking about some of the great bills that passed through our 2023 legislative session, and we're going to be comparing and contrasting them to some of the terrifying bills that are moving through other legislatures around the country. We'll also be joined later today by some of our ATF officers. ATF Executive Vice President Sean Thomas will be joining us. He's a social studies teacher at El Dorado High School. We're also going to be joined by our secretary, Terry Bitsy, who is a fourth grade bilingual teacher down at Alamosa Elementary, and Sarah Adelson, our co-chair, who is the librarian at Kennedy Middle School for a discussion about why it's great to be a New Mexican and the ways that some entities are trying to get the culture wars into our schools. And as always, I'm joined by our president, Ellen Bernstein. How's it going, Ellen? Going good, Dwayne. I think we should talk a little bit about the proposed calendar in APS. That's definitely what's on people's mind. We sent out a survey this past week. If you haven't filled it out, members, we would love for you to let us know uh, what you would like us to say to the Board of Education and to APS about the proposed calendar. What were some of the features of the calendar that you found notable? Well, let me give everybody a little background about this calendar. We waited and waited until House Bill 130, also known as K-12+, when it passed and it was on its way to the governor, that's when APS could finally figure out how to calendar for next year. We didn't know exactly what the bill was going to mandate in terms of instructional hours and how that was going to work out. And a lot of people had worries about that. They worried that it was going to extend the school year for two weeks, a debate that most people had the year before and a lot of people rejected. They worried that we were going to have eight-hour days and they would have trouble with child care and other issues. And what APS did with it, I think, is really making lemonade out of what could have been a bunch of lemons. So really, this calendar, first of all, it's important to understand that the breaks are longer. We have a longer Thanksgiving break, winter break, and spring break. They tried to contain the calendar between the months of August and May, and they went one day into July. And that's okay because we're starting on a Monday. We also have professional development days for all of the educators, not just bunched up at the beginning of the calendar, but a little bit throughout the calendar. 
And one of the things that they did with professional development and time for all of us as adults to get together and talk about our work was they released elementary and mid-schools early on Wednesday because Senate Bill 130, and I'm really grateful for this, what they said is adult time is just as important as instructional time. We need time to plan, to prepare, and to learn so that we can do our best jobs with the students that we teach every day and we work with every day. So that early release time you know, we're going to negotiate about how that's used, but it really gives the adults some time to collaborate. And the great thing for elementary and mid is it puts their prep time that was taken for collaboration back into their regular week. So increasing prep time. And then at the high school level, there is a big fear about what that would look like. Would we lose collaboration that's already built into the schedule? But what APS did is they didn't have early release on Wednesday for high school, maintaining that collaboration time within the day. So I really think in terms of what could have happened and what did happen. This is really a very livable calendar for all the educators. And for those people that have questions and issues, I think we can work those out. And getting back to one of the points that you made very wisely, I think that the bill that passed leaves a lot of leeway in there for local unions to be able to negotiate the terms and conditions of how this is going to roll out as far as how we're going to meet these professional development mandates. So um, I know that people have a chance to give APS input. It's on their website. We sent out a survey to members and pretty soon in April, I think the Board of Education is going to have a chance to vote on this calendar. And then if they approve it, then we'll know how to plan and prepare for next year. And we're starting negotiations early in April. So we'll be able to start working on how the Wednesday early release will pan out in the elementary and mid schools and other important things about how our calendar will work the first three days when we don't have kids. So stay tuned. We're going to be giving you a lot of information once we know if this calendar has passed and once we've worked out some things at the table. Okay, we're joined today for a conversation about how great it is to be a New Mexican right now by our ATF Executive Vice President, Sean Thomas, who teaches social studies up at El Dorado High School. We have our secretary, Terry Bitsy, who teaches fourth grade dual language at Alamosa Elementary. And we have Sarah Adelson, our ATF Unified COPE chairperson, who is a librarian at Kennedy Middle School, where she's fighting the good fight against the banning of books and all of the other crazy things that are going on around the country. We're going to talk a little bit about how uh, the session went uh, over here in New Mexico versus what's going on in the rest of the world out there. Ellen, what does it look like as far as where New Mexico is compared to some other states? Dwayne, Sometimes we get really frustrated with the legislative process and we wonder why more good things can't happen for our state, for our society, and for our public schools. But when you look at it in a broad sense, you can see that our New Mexico legislature 
has done an incredible job countering all the culture wars and the negative legislation going on across the nation. For example, one of the first bills, House Bill 7, is called Reproductive and Gender-Affirming Health Care. I mean, when you think about all of the narratives against gay, trans, kids, teachers all across the nation, and you see that one of the first House bills that passed is affirming, I think that speaks volumes to what's going on here in New Mexico. We actually did some gun legislation where it's unlawful to allow a minor to get a gun, which stemmed from the shooting of one of our kids at Washington Middle School. I'm very proud that Representative Herndon was able to carry this not just last year, but this year and actually get it passed. We did something for salaries for our lowest paid people, the educational assistants. And if you've been listening to to the news lately, you can see that the paraprofessionals in UTLA, in LA, have gone out on strike for three days because they can't get their district to pay them more like we finally did in legislation this year in New Mexico. So I would say compared to some of the really negative, divisive things that are going on across the country, we're doing great here. That's true. And at the same time, we know that there were several bills that were brought up as far as trying to bring the culture war into our classrooms here in New Mexico. Probably the star of the culture warriors on the uh, right side of the aisle is uh, John Block, who moved Alamogordo from northern New Mexico so that he could run on a very extreme right wing platform. He, along with several other lawmakers who co-signed his bills, introduced bills like you can't say Latinx in schools, protecting, quote unquote, air quotes, women's sports which is a totally transphobic bill that they came up with. None of these bills that they're putting forward have anything to do with improving education. They have nothing to do with improving the lives of New Mexicans. It's just part of the hate-filled culture war. I know that teachers in the classroom and other educators in the classrooms are feeling these issues coming to light where they are working. Sean, is there anything that um, you're seeing as a high school teacher? Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. You know, uh, you have a lot of these people who are getting elected into office trying to basically propose ideas where we can operate as educators, as ecosystems for certain types of political ideologies. And what's funny is what they're saying teachers are doing is exactly what they're trying to do in our classrooms. They want us to be echo chambers rather than teachers who teach our students how to think and give them opportunities. And so, you know, you talk about like CRT and the big fear of that. And even though we don't technically teach it because it's a law school argument, the idea is we should have conversations about what are the consequences of long-term racism that existed out of a country that has a long history of oppression towards certain groups of people. And it's not just African-Americans, it's Native Americans, it's Hispanics, or Chicanos, or Latinx, even though we can't say that pretty soon, probably. Um, so <laughs> we at least we can say it in New Mexico, right? So we have this situation where I do think there's a lot of teachers that are kind of afraid to broach subjects because they're afraid of what that pushback is. You know, being a social studies teacher, it's like, what's off limits? And And the argument in education is nothing should be off limits. If it's happening in the current world or if it happened in our history, we need to be able to discuss those issues. And I've always said that for New Mexico. I've I've never really been limited 
in what I can teach as long as I'm meeting those standards, which has been fairly nice. And you're using your professional judgment, Sean, as you introduce topics that are in the real lives of the kids that you teach every day. You use your judgment about how to frame things and how to include all voices in the conversation. And I just want to, on this note, point out that House Bill 207 expanded the Human Rights Act particularly for members of the LGBTQ plus community. So we in New Mexico are passing legislation that actually protects you and the rest of us in having conversations, supporting people in all of forms of diversity and making sure that we're an inclusive state. And I just want to shout that out because that is not true in Florida. No. Well, and on a cool note, one of my kids who's part of the queer community lobbied specifically on that bill in Santa Fe and talked to legislators. And one of the few Republican, there were only four Republican legislators who voted for that bill. But one of the ones that did, one of my students talked to and he changed his vote. So, I mean, I think that's empowering to give students the ability to do that. Yeah. One of the bills that uh, was very specific to New Mexico, it seems, was a ban on teaching critical Rasa theory. I, I Googled that and it doesn't exist. <laughs> and nowhere in, nowhere in the bill does it give a definition of what critical Rasa theory is. It's akin to Texas teachers not being able to teach the true history of the Texas Rangers and how they uh, committed so much violence against uh, Mexican-Americans in, in, in that state. And it, it's kind of like, shh, shh, this didn't really happen, just like we're seeing with DeSantis's ban on African-American history over in Florida. Uh, Sarah, you're on the front lines of this as a librarian. I know that Moms for Liberty has a really big movement to try and look at all of our library books and see what people should be reading and what they shouldn't. Have you have you been seeing this at your school? Absolutely. Uh, well, in the district, our director of library services had a school board member come visit at uh, the beginning of this school year in August, asking our director of library services how she and other mothers could get into our libraries to check our collections. So they are alive and well. Last month's agenda for Moms for Liberty was full of how do we check our school libraries and our school librarians' orders. So it's very much alive and well in Albuquerque public schools. And somehow it's alive and well, although most voters have indicated, especially in a recent heart poll that American Federation of Teachers quoted, that 65% of voters said they believe teachers are teaching real history. And 82% of voters wanted teachers to teach real history, wanted those kinds of books that Moms for Liberty are evidently against to be in our libraries. Right, Dwayne. I think one of the things to notice with that poll is a lot of the people who said that they wanted us to teach real history or that we were teaching real history, the biggest complaint was that we need to be even more accurate. We need to be even more inclusive. We need to have even more voices rather than excluding them we need to add more, right? And so they want the real history. And I I do think that that's an important thing that this is not representative. A lot of these conservative policies in these states are, are not what the people actually want for their schools. Well, you're right, Sean, but at the same time, the ACLU has identified 91 education-related anti-LGBTQ bills, including legislation concerning bathrooms and athletics. 
I have the good fortune of working with our secretary, Terry Bitsy, on our Visible in My Job committee. And in the last meeting, we were talking about the atmosphere right now and the atmosphere that our educators and students alike are facing as far as LGBTQ issues and the backlash that a very small minority of people are making a lot of noise about. Terry, would you share some of that conversation that we had? Yes. In our last Visible in My Job Committee, we were just talking a little bit about boots on the ground as teachers. What are we experiencing? What are some of the things that we're seeing and hearing? And I just, I can't emphasize enough that it is coming from a very active vocal minority of, of voices. However, they are very, very strong. For example, at my particular school, I have Arcoiris Recess Club. So I have students that come to me several times a week. They spend their recess times there so that they can, you know, be in a safe space with other friends and allies and be able to talk about topics that they're interested in or listen to music, draw, what have you. And for the most part, I believe that the staff, the teachers, fellow students and families are supportive of that activity and what we do. But I've seen and heard a couple of instances where the kids are coming to that safe space and yet there's a very vocal parents that are against that, like students having their own constitutionally protected like conversations. And that's somehow that that's not okay. It absolutely is okay. And I, I don't feel that there was as much of a pushback against this really important advocacy in this work that I'm doing as I have felt in the last couple of years. And previous to that, I felt very encouraged by the community support. And it's only been, you know, probably since the presidential election took place that I really feel like that has grown quite a lot. We know that, uh, especially coming out of the depths of the pandemic, the pandemic's still with us, of course, uh, that we have a lot more social emotional needs, a lot more mental health needs among our students and our staff as well. And and Sean, I wanted to turn back to you for just a moment. This legislative session, there was a bill, HB 112, Public School Wellness Room Pilot Project that our honorary member, Representative Pamela Herndon, sponsored. Were we able to get that over the finish line? And can you just talk a little bit about that bill, Sean? We weren't able to get that over the finish line, but at least it got through a lot of ears. It looks like there's a future where that may pass. There's some details that they need to figure out. One of them is how do you staff that room? El Dorado became kind of the model through the work that I did with some students at that school that we needed more mental health supports after, unfortunately, a lot of student loss. And in that situation, you know, I had students who went up and spoke at the mental health day with Herndon, did an actual press conference, and then went and talked to different committees and people who were voting on the bill. And I think there's support for general ideas like that. And there were some other mental health bills that passed. I would say everything that was in support like we were talking about earlier with the LGBTQ plus community, you know, the more comfortable these youth feel at our schools, the, the stronger their mental health will be, right? So you, we need those supports into the system, but it's hard. There's no school that there's a silver bullet solution to mental health. So schools have to have the independence to develop those certain programs for the needs of their students. But our state has a hard time understanding that. So we're in a good place because our state right now seems to understand that we need to put mental health supports into schools, but we're going to still have to lobby and work for the argument of how do we do that and how can we create policy that allows individual school districts and in the larger school districts, maybe even individual schools, the autonomy to develop a program that's best for their kids. And I think 
that that kind of hurt this bill as it was going through. This is one of the things that really makes me proud to be a member of this union and working in this union is the great work that our our leadership's doing as teachers out there in schools and as educators out in schools uh, with Terry talking about the safe zone uh, that she has in her classroom, Sean's work with these wellness rooms. And Sarah Adelson, I want to come back to you because one of our most loved Facebook posts of all time was your banned books display that you had in your library. Would you want to talk about that and where your idea came from for that? Actually, I worked with my principal on it and got full support from her. And it came from all of the readings about how parents were coming in and deciding for not their student, but for other students that they wanted books removed. Absolutely, parents can come in and tell me they do not want their child to read a book. That's fine. Sorry for the child, but that's fine. But they cannot, absolutely cannot speak for all the students in my school or any school. I always do a display of banned books every September during banned book week. And that's when circulation really goes up. But this year and last year, it's an all year display. And students come back after reading great books and always ask me, why was this book banned? I tell them, I'm not sure. You tell me. Someone was offended by something. And we have great discussions on what that could have been. You know, when Tuck Everlasting is banned and Charlotte's Web, students are concerned about that. They're very surprised about the many books that have been attempted to be banned. But I remind the students that we have a great constitution. We have a First Amendment that hangs in our library that says there can be no censorship of printed material. That's a very powerful thing that our books, the printed word, is protected by our Constitution. I think a lot of Moms for Liberty need to maybe study at least the First Amendment. We are protected constitutionally. And Sarah, what was the title of your display? I forget. It was Read a Book That Many Adults Don't Want You to Read. And that got everybody reading. (laughs) They just ran off the shelf. And I kind of had to personally inside giggle because they were reading some really fine books and unbeknownst to them. And uh, they go and try to figure out why that book was banned. And I just tell them, someone didn't want you to read it. It's been very successful. I think my students understand the connection between you can't ban a book They are free to read what they want. When we select books, librarians select books that reflect our students. Our students want to see themselves in the books. We have a section of LGBTQ books for students to read. We have lots of fine culturally relevant literature. I'm sure many Moms for Liberty would object to that, but that's what librarians do. We get books for our students, not our parents. Terry also represents our union with one of our greatest community allies, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, which is GLSEN. You guys have been talking about books and what makes the cut and what books are under fire right now. What are those conversations like? 
we normally just call glisten glisten. It's kind of like nobody says Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. <laughs> we call it KFC. So, um, but glisten still encompasses our always evolving program submission. So, yes, I am a, a federation representative at my school. I serve on the executive council, but I'm also a member of Glisten New Mexico. So, I'm very involved with facilitating uh, professional development workshops across the state. Within Glisten National, we have many different programs, and another program that we have is called the Rainbow Library. To my knowledge, there's about five dozen or so different schools this past year alone here in uh, New Mexico that have received a set of books from the Glisten Rainbow Library. And basically, they are a curated set of books for the primary levels, intermediate elementary, middle school, and high school. These are all very highly vetted books in which there are uh, LGBTQ plus characters or history or theme, beautifully illustrated books for the younger grades and picture books, and really beautiful novels at the middle school, high school levels. And for any of our uh, listeners out there who are not aware if they have a rainbow library from Glisten at their APS school, you may apply to have a set of books delivered to your school, and then you work with library services to get those cataloged. I have to say that for the most part, I think that the support for bringing in this new set of books into our school library has been great. I'm sure it has, that's been the experience for many of the teachers across New Mexico and here at APS who've received these books. However, there are people, vocal voices that are definitely against these books. We need to have materials that reflect the cultural background of all of our students. You're bringing out, Terry, that it's not just good to be a New Mexican, but it's good to be a New Mexican teacher protected by a good union with strong contract language. But I want to move us a little bit from the culture wars in terms of it's good to be a New Mexican and kind of get into a few of the budget wars. One of the things that's important to understand is that there are 72 different voucher and tax credit programs subsidizing private and homeschooling in the United States. They are in 33 states and they cover approximately 1.15 million participants. The cost is approximately $3.6 million a year. It's like the culmination of a 30-year effort that started back in Milwaukee and Cleveland with their voucher programs. So Duane, there were two different bills, voucher and tuition tax credit bills that didn't pass in our legislature. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And um, I don't know if you said million, but it was over $3.6 billion being funneled out through vouchers. Thank you. And as we're seeing, uh, DeSantis in Florida is trying to make the whole state a voucher state. We had two such bills. They arose from the Senate originally. Um, the first was SB 109, which Craig Brandt from uh, Real Rancho carried. And that one was called an education freedom account. And essentially, it was just the PED and the state, if this bill would have passed, would just give money to parents and then let parents either homeschool or send their kids to private school. It was pointed out in the Senate Education Committee that that would be breaking the Constitution of New Mexico, where we have a constitution that says we're going to fund public education. That was killed in committee. The second one was SB 113, carried by Democrat Jerry Ortiz Pino in the Senate. And that one was a, a strange bill <laughs> because... It didn't give money directly to parents. What it did was give a tax break to these companies that come in and provide private scholarships 
for kids to go to private school using public money. So it would have given a big tax break to these pretty much their headhunters who go around finding kids to enroll in private school and then they get them the scholarships, quote unquote. Then that bill was also carried by uh, Wanda Johnson and Patty Lundstrom in the in the House. They just duplicated it. Now, two of the things about those bills, they are directly related to the Koch brothers in the Koch brothers network. We know here in Albuquerque, we now have an office of Americans for Prosperity to help facilitate all of this undermining of public education. The bill carried by Craig Brandt came directly from the ALEC website, the American Legislative Exchange Council. We have a link to that on our website showing that it is pretty much a copy and paste bill, although he denied that in Senate education. The very sad thing was that Senator Ortiz Pino's bill was copied directly from a model bill on the Cato Institute's website, and there will also be a link to that on our website in, in a new story that we're going to put up. So these are not grassroots movements, just like Moms for Liberty is not a grassroots movement. These people are funded and they have deep funding tendrils that go back to the Waltons of Walmart fame and Betsy DeVos and all of those kinds of folks. So they've tried to bring those kinds of ideas into New Mexico, but that is not what the people of New Mexico have shown time and time again that they want. We want to improve our public schools, not destroy them. And then a few other things that we did in New Mexico that I don't think is happening across the nation is we're really affirming a lot of needs here. We have Senate Bill 397 that creates a new section of public health to create school-based health centers and affirming like Sean was talking about the need for both mental and physical health in our schools. Senator Padilla and Jaramillo passed the Free Lunch for Everybody Act. And I know there was a lot of conversation about not just free lunches for everybody, but trying to get more healthy in the lunches. I am very proud that we have Representative Christine Trujillo sponsoring Labor History Month. It's important that we all learn about our union roots in our nation. And a shout out for all women and girls everywhere, where she also got menstrual products and school bathrooms for free, which I think is really a huge issue that we're supporting young girls, we're not shaming them anymore, and we're making sure that they all have equal access to what they need. It's really good to be a New Mexican when you think about what's going on in some of the states across the nation. Yeah, and I feel like the bill that Sean talked about with the school wellness program really fits in well, and hopefully the additional money for school-based health clinics is going to help make some of those mental health resources be more available to people. I was just down in TRC and they have a school-based clinic. It doesn't sound like something that's so important in Albuquerque because, you know, we have different clinics, different health cares and everything. But when you get out into the rural areas, having a school-based health clinic like that's really going to make a difference for folks. And hopefully it'll open up uh, more mental health services like Sean was talking about with the wellness. So anybody else, Terry, Sarah, Sean, anything you want to say as we close out this segment about what's going on here in our schools and what it's like to teach here with supportive political context, a support supportive school district versus what it might feel like to teach elsewhere. I just wanted to say that I read the Diane Ravage blog every morning. That's how I start my day. And I read about these horrendous, ridiculous, scary things that are happening in other states. Ravage always gives a nod to how 
well we are doing in New Mexico with our legislature, with Senator Padilla's bill. When I see New Mexico, it's always good. But I also want to have us not get comfortable that we are in a blue state. We are coming up in November to a school board election in Albuquerque. The founder of Moms for Liberty is now a school board member in Florida. Governor DeSantis has a list of board members that he is out to unseat. They are in all of our states. They have a chapter now in Massachusetts, one of the bluest states ever. They have two chapters here in the Albuquerque area, Sandoval County and Bernalillo County. And there was a school board election recently in South Carolina. I know it's a red state, but however, the school board candidates that won were all Moms for Liberty backed and funded by all of our friends, the Koch brothers, etc. And they won. And their first, very first night after being sworn in, they fired the superintendent. They fired the district legal counsel. They voted to cut property taxes and they approved a ban on critical race theory in the classroom and set up a panel to begin reviewing and banning books containing sexual content that they deemed inappropriate. That was their first night sworn in. So just we need to pay attention and be vigilant about who we vote for in the upcoming Board of Education. How can folks get active in that, Sarah? What's uh, what's our means as union members? Thank you, Dwayne, for asking that question. Once we have our third candidate, we are going to hit the streets, knocking on doors to all union members and share why union families need to be voting for union-friendly, public education-friendly candidates. We will be having phone banks. We will be having canvases. We are dying to start. Right now, we're just educating the voters that this election is critical. And they can do that, especially by joining our local COPE committee, ATF Unified COPE, where we work with the New Mexico retirees and we work with our colleagues and brothers and sisters and siblings at AFCP, Classified Educators. You can join the COPE committee by electing to give a contribution out of your paycheck. It comes right out. And that's the way we do a lot of our political activity. Do you want to talk some more about that, Sarah? The candidates aren't wealthy. The candidates that we support are not Koch-funded or Walton family-supported candidates. They're supported by a teacher's union. Not a lot of money, but we need to give them money for their publications, all of their work. And we need money to pay for like meals from volunteers and our phones. It goes a long way for, for starters. Before we end the segment, Terry, Sean, anything else you want to say about what it's like to teach in New Mexico and why you wouldn't want to move to Florida? I taught three lessons right before screen break that would have gotten me fired in Florida. And I think that there's a good idea to remember that it's not just Florida but it's Florida, it's Texas, it's Tennessee, it's all over the nation. In my human development phase in AP Psych or unit in AP Psych, I I have to talk about gender and it's an ever-changing process. And I work with our sociology teacher and we talk about gender and how 
you know, generationally it's different and, and how it's a social creation, which is apparently not something you can say anymore in Florida. You sit there and you, you just think about, well, okay, in another state, that's a lesson that could have gotten me fired. You know, in government, we studied the Supreme Court case that dealt with the transgender youth that was denied access to his bathroom, you know, and we're sitting down and we're having that conversation, even though it's an actual Supreme Court case. God forbid we give them any integrity or humanity, you know, from that community. That's a potential lesson again that I could have been fired for. I think when you really start talking about teacher autonomy, which has always been a big deal for me for my career, I'm teaching to the standards. I got to teach the Supreme Court. I got to teach how they make their rulings. I got to teach about how it relates to the Constitution. I mean, these are in my standards. And yet I choose to teach those standards through Supreme Court cases that expand rights for people. But in that case, you know, talking about uh, transgender youth, it could be potential for why I would be put on leave pending an investigation and maybe released in a state like Florida. The autonomy is not just in practice and pedagogy, but it's also in thought and creation of lessons and topics that you can talk about. And I think that's an, uh, the intellectual autonomy that our students need, even more so than our teachers, is pretty important. I can imagine that you really had some interesting conversations and the kids were engaged with that because it is something that's important to them. And you can have the kids debate it. You don't have to tell them what to think about it. But to not even be able to include that as part of your discussion is a ridiculous situation that many of our colleagues and in some states are having to deal with. Well, I'm very happy that you guys could be here today. I'm very sad that this is a conversation that we will probably have to have some more of. It doesn't seem like these attacks on our public schools and our public school students and educators are going anywhere and they're not going away soon. But I want to thank you, Sarah Adelson, for joining us, uh, our ATF co-chair, Sean Thomas, our executive vice president, and Terry Bitsy, our secretary. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will get you back on here as soon as we can. I'm on the side of poor people getting organized. I'm on the side of choice where it is in short supply. I'm on the side of those the system doesn't authorize. LGBT, we are on the side of pride, justice and equality. Egypt and Wisconsin when they march against the policy. If you bring the down, I came I'm on your side probably. Kids are giving me shit for this, it really doesn't bother me. They were not around, but we were wrestling with poverty. So I follow mine and ask no one to follow me. Use your own mind, use your heart and your anger. Check yourself because apathy is a cancer and let your action be the answer. Which are you on?